given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless now the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination now that we would understand rightly the word of God and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and lives that are marked by obedience. Father, please keep me from error. Please help your church to be discerning and marked by the truth. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Historically, Christians have affirmed that Jesus Christ fulfills three offices in his work as Savior. Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Those three offices have their roots in God's dealing with Israel in the Old Testament. A prophet, you'll recall, was God's mouthpiece, the one through whom God made himself known. A priest was God's mediator, the one through whom atonement and intercession were offered for the people of God. And the king was God's ruler, the one through whom God's enemies were overcome. Israel's life together in the Old Testament was very often marked out by these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. As you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's clear at least to the New Testament writers, that Jesus Christ fulfills those three offices, but in a much greater greater way. The Gospel of John is a good example. You can make the case that the Gospel of John presents Jesus Christ as the greater prophet, priest, and king throughout the course of John's book. Think back to chapter 1, where Jesus is identified as the Word made flesh. What does the Word do? He reveals God. He teaches God's people what God is like, thus fulfilling in a much greater way the role of a prophet. If John chapter 1 is too long ago for you to remember, then just think back to last week when Mary anointed Jesus for his burial. Why will Jesus die? Because Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, plots to kill him. Mary's act then is an act of consecration for Jesus. God's people need another high priest, a better high priest. And this better high priest will be faithful unto death. Jesus is that greater high priest. Our passage today completes that threefold picture These verses describe Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the crowd, the crowd in this passage tells you how you ought to interpret the scene. Waving their palm branches, the crowd acclaims that Jesus is the king of Israel. The ruler anointed by God to defeat his enemies and to save his people. So if John chapter 1 presents Jesus as the greater prophet, and if Mary's anointing presents Jesus as the greater high priest, then the triumphal entry begins Jesus' coronation, where the king receives his crown. But as readers of John's gospel, this this is where we pause. 
for all of the celebration of this passage, for all of the glory of Palm Sunday, as it's come to be called, we know what comes next, don't we? Betrayal and crucifixion and death and burial. So the crowd in Jerusalem is telling the truth. Jesus is the king. But the crowd is also missing some key pieces to the picture. The king does not come with a message of war, but to proclaim peace, even to his enemies. The king arrives to rule over not only Israel, but all of the nations. And the king comes to claim his crown, not through worldly power, but through suffering. This is the truth of Jesus' triumphal entry. He is clearly the king of Israel. It's so clear the crowds can see it. He's clearly the king of Israel. But his kingship is different than and greater than any who have come before him. So our goal this morning is to understand the triumphal entry from the perspective of Jesus as king. What does Palm Sunday teach us about the kingship of Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to consider today. What does Palm Sunday teach us about the kingship of Jesus Christ? There are three truths that we ought to consider in order to follow Christ the King. The first is found in verses 12 to 18 where the king appeals to his enemies with peace. Truth number one, the king appeals to his enemies with peace. Despite the plotting of the religious leaders, a a large crowd flocks to Jesus, verse 12. Remember, Passover is at hand, and so many Israelites are in Jerusalem in order to prepare for the Passover. And when Jesus approaches the city, many of those people begin to stream out of Jerusalem to find him. Verse 17, later, also makes clear that many of the people who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus are are coming with Jesus as well. So you can appreciate the scene. People coming with Jesus up to Jerusalem from Bethany and people coming to Jesus out of Jerusalem to meet Him on the road. It's this this convergence of people as they come together. And the procession, the procession quickly takes on royal tones. The, The entire scene has an air of fulfillment. This occurs in two particular ways. The first is the crowd's cry in verse 13. Listen again to what they say. Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, there's some discussion about the significance of palm branches. By this point in Jewish history, a palm branch may have served as a national symbol, kind of like a a bald eagle does for our country. So the palm branch may have had some kind of national significance. And if so, then, then the waving of the palm branches is highlighting Jesus as the deliverer of the nation. But if there's a question about the palm branches, there's no question about the crowd's language, which comes from Psalm 118. This particular psalm, which the crowd quotes in verse 13, was the last in a series of psalms that was read out loud during uh, times of religious celebration in the life of Israel. If you were a worshiping Israelite, you would begin with Psalm 113, and you would read 14, 15, 16, 17, and then you would culminate by reading Psalm 118. It's this series of celebratory songs. And this psalm in particular, 
118 is a song of deliverance. The psalmist remembers a time when he was surrounded by his enemies, but in the name of his God, he cuts them off. That's what the psalm says. It's a song of deliverance. And the climax of the psalm is this shout of blessing that the crowd quotes right here. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who belong to God are blessed by the one who works their deliverance. By Jesus' day, Psalm 118 had become very closely connected with the Messiah. The one who comes in the name of the Lord was none other than Israel's king, the Messiah. This is why the crowd adds that line, even the king of Israel. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That line is not in Psalm 118, but it's the right interpretation of it. It's telling you the expectation The crowd views Jesus' arrival as the entry of the king. It's a royal procession. And the one who will bring blessing to the people of God is coming. So verse 13 reveals royal expectation from the Old Testament. That royal expectation is further established by the Apostle John's use of the Old Testament. The crowd quotes the Old Testament and John quotes the Old Testament. Look down at verse 15. John says this was to fulfill a passage from the Old Testament. Verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Friends, that's a citation from Zechariah chapter 9. It might have been some time since you read Zechariah. So let me give you a little background as to the book. Zechariah wrote several years after Israel returned from exile in Babylon. And it wasn't an easy time for the people of God. They still lived in ruins, their enemies plagued them, and there was little of the former glory that accompanied the reign of King David. Imagine living in a powerful kingdom, then being taken away to another country for decades, and then coming back and having to live in the ruins. That's when Zechariah wrote. And so he wrote to a people who were discouraged, and dispirited. But into that discouragement, Zechariah prophesied good news. God had not forgotten his people. Zion's king would return one day, riding on a donkey. And as a result, salvation would come again to the people of God. Salvation would come to Israel, and the sign would be the return of the king riding on a donkey. So, by citing Zechariah 9, the Apostle John is telling you how to understand this moment. Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of God's promise. It's true that Jesus heads for Jerusalem under the cloud of the religious leaders plotting to kill him, but God's word is greater than the religious leaders plotting. What drives Jesus to Jerusalem is ultimately not the Pharisees' opposition, but the word of God. Jesus comes to fulfill Old Testament promises. So, the royal expectation of the scene is quite clear. The atmosphere is established through the use of the Old Testament, both from the crowd and from the Apostle John. But it's equally clear, it's equally clear that the crowd's expectations for the king are misguided. Just like Mary last week The crowd acts better than it knows. Jesus is the king, but he's not the kind of king 
that the crowd expects him to be. How do we know that the crowd is misguided? Well, John actually tells us in a number of ways that the crowd is misguided. I mean, notice, first of all, Jesus' choice of transportation. He rides on a donkey. Why is that significant? Well, to put it simply, a donkey is not a war horse. I'm not super familiar with donkeys, but I'm pretty sure that if you wanted to ride into battle and mow down your enemies, you would not choose a donkey. You would choose a horse. So if a king approached your city riding on a donkey, that means he's not coming to make war on you. He's coming in peace. He's coming to make peace. And that's what the crowd misses at this point. Their cries of Hosanna in verse 13 are the expectation of conquest. In their minds, Jesus has come to drive out the Romans, to conquer all of these pagans that are polluting the Holy Land. Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom on earth, and he's going to establish it with a sword. The crowd thinks in worldly terms of military power. And that's precisely why Jesus rides on the donkey, the, the beast of peace, not the war horse coming to conquer. Jesus is not coming in worldly terms of military power. He comes in humble terms of self-sacrificing love. He does not come to make war, but to proclaim peace. The crowd is misguided in what they want. Along with this, another way we know that the crowd is misguided is, again, the use of Psalm 118. I hope you go home today and read Psalm 118. It's an important passage to read for understanding this text. Remember verse 13, the psalm, the crowd cites from this psalm revealing their expectation of deliverance. That's why they cry out Hosanna. They expect to be delivered. But, but here's the fascinating thing when you go back and read Psalm 118. This is also the psalm that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the same psalm. Jesus is that stone. The builders, Israel's religious leaders, have rejected him. But through that rejection, Jesus' death, God is building a new temple, a new people in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's more going on here than the crowd understands. In fact, Jesus' rejection at the cross is precisely the reason that he comes in peace. The crowd thinks their greatest enemy is the Romans. And therefore, their greatest need is political deliverance. But the reality is much worse than that, isn't it? Their greatest enemy is their sin, which makes them enemies of God. And therefore, their greatest need is for peace with God through an atoning sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. Through that rejection in Jerusalem, through Jesus' rejection, he will make peace between God and his people. And that peace will come through his own blood. And therefore, John is right. John is right in verse 15 when he says, fear not. I don't want you to miss this part of the passage. In verse 15, fear not, John says. 
Appreciate the point that he's making in this presentation. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem where the religious leaders and Judas are plotting to put him to death. But instead of riding into the city on a war horse to destroy the wicked, Jesus the king rides in on a donkey in a display of peace. Appreciate the scene. Even right now, as his enemies are plotting to kill him, even right now, Jesus is patient with them. He comes in terms of peace, holding out to them the promise of life if they will repent and trust him. Even now, Jesus the King appeals to his enemies to receive the salvation of God. Even now, Jesus the King is slow to anger and abounding in love for those who reject him. Even now, he is patient. The triumphal entry is significant in so many ways. So many ways. But perhaps the most significant is how it reveals to us the patient, kind, compassionate, loving heart of Christ the King. Even now, even now, He stands ready to receive those who will turn from their sin and trust Him. He's patient. We're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this aspect of Jesus' kingship later in the conclusion. Because there's more that we need to think about there. For now, let's shift to the second truth about Jesus as king from verses 19 to 22. Second truth the king draws the nations to glory. The king draws the nations to glory. You may remember from last week that the Pharisees were very concerned about Jesus' increasing crowds. Every time the crowd increases, Jesus' authority increases in their minds. And so he is a danger to them, which is why they're plotting his demise. That's why they're trying to kill him. Well, in verse 19, things are, are not going very well, at least according to the Pharisees. Notice what they say. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. So this is another example of God frustrating the plans of the wicked. The Pharisees can't seem to stop Jesus. This helps us understand what is going to happen to Jesus later at the cross. When Jesus is finally put to death, this is an important clarification. When Jesus is finally put to death, it won't be because the religious leaders have triumphed over him. He's not a victim. No one takes his life from him. Judas doesn't get the drop on Jesus. Jesus lays down his life willingly. The Pharisees don't have the upper hand. So when Jesus dies, it's not because the Pharisees win. It's because God wills in his sovereign wisdom to fulfill his promises through the death and resurrection of his son. So for now, verse 19, the Pharisees are are frustrated. You'll notice at the end of their frustration that they begin to exaggerate. They say the whole world has gone after, after Jesus. Of course, that's, that's hyperbole, isn't it? It's not true that literally the entire world is now following Jesus. But that's how frustrated the Pharisees are. It's like the whole world is against them. And so they exaggerate the situation because they are irritated. But as we transition to verse 20, 
John does something both clever and glorious. John uses the Pharisees' frustrated hyperbole to draw out a pretty glorious truth. Notice what happens, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, this is more than a passing detail from the Apostle John. Your, your Bibles may be like my Bible and have a section break between verse 19 and 20. You see, there's probably a, there might be a heading there between verses 19 and 20. That, that heading doesn't really serve understanding the passage. Here, here's what I mean. The Greeks in verse 20 are Gentiles. They are representative of the world. Most likely, they are God-fearing Gentiles who wish to participate as much as they are allowed in Israel's Passover. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem had a Gentile court to accommodate these, these kinds of worshipers. But even then, Gentiles were not allowed to fully enter the temple complex. They weren't allowed to fully participate in the Passover. These Gentiles in verse 20, however, are closer to the truth than the Pharisees are. The Gentiles want to see Jesus. So, make the connection between the Pharisees' frustration, verse 19, and what happens in verse 20. The Pharisees grumble that the whole world has gone after Jesus. And immediately after their complaint, Gentiles show up seeking the Lord. What's going on? The world, in other words, is being drawn to the Messiah. The world is being drawn in to believe in Israel's king. It's another reminder that God's plan cannot be stopped. Even the Old Testament itself anticipated the day when the Messiah would be a light for all of the nations. And that's what's happening at the triumphal entry. Jesus is the king, but he is so much more than the king of Israel. He is the king over all the nations. All the nations will come and worship before him and, and this small detail in John 12 is a picture of that, of that glory. Listen, I know these verses are short. This is just a brief paragraph. It's just a small little moment on the road to Jesus' passion. I know that it's easy to read over these verses quickly because there are, in our minds, more significant things to come. But I hope that we don't miss the encouragement. The Pharisees frustration is actually a reminder of the truth. I love this part about John. God puts the truth in the mouths of the wicked so often. And their frustration is a reminder of the truth. The plans of the wicked will be frustrated. But the plan of God will certainly come to pass. Look, even now, for us, even now in our lives, as so many things in our world appear out of control and opposed to God, even now, the kingdom of God stands firm. God's purpose is advancing. Wicked men rise and fall, while the gospel marches around the globe, bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Friends, it should get your attention that the world has been opposing Christ. The Pharisees here represent the the unbelieving world, the world has been opposing Christ for 2,000 years and we're still here. <laughs> we're still here. And the truth marches on and the church grows and the gates of hell will not prevail. 
So, let's not breeze past this paragraph too quickly. This is a small reminder. These verses are a small reminder that we ought not to lose heart. This is part of the encouragement we ought to receive from Christ as the King. When the wicked plot and scheme, just remember these these short verses from John's Gospel and be encouraged. The world has gone after him, the Pharisees say, and we say, indeed it has. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including us. All to the glory of God. That brings us to truth number three. The final truth on Christ's kingship. This is from verses 23 to 26. The king calls his followers to the cross. The king calls his followers to the cross. John never gives us the end of the story on the Gentiles in verse 20. I'd like to know what happens, but John doesn't tell us. Instead, the arrival of the Gentiles becomes an indication that Jesus' final hour has arrived. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, verse 23 is like a flashing light on the road of redemptive history telling you that we have reached a turning point. That's how Jesus interprets the arrival of the Gentiles. Up until now in John's Gospel, the hour of Jesus' glory has always been future. The hour was always future. So, for example, chapter 2, when Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine, and Jesus says to his mother, the hour has not yet come. So all through John, the hour is future. But now, chapter 12, time has changed. Now Jesus says the hour has come. Now is the time for Jesus to receive his glory through the cross and resurrection. So the arrival of these Gentiles is the indication that God's plan, promised long ago in the Old Testament, is now ready to be fulfilled. The time is at hand, to borrow a a phrase from the Apostle Paul. The Son of Man will be raised up at the cross, and through that cross he will draw the world to himself, all kinds of people. Jew and and Gentile alike. So in a way, verse 23 is Jesus' Jesus' way of telling us the cross is the next thing. that The hour has come. Jesus then confirms that emphasis in verse 24. He uses an agricultural analogy to picture the life-giving power of his death. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So bear with me for just a moment as we flesh out this analogy here. Seeds seeds are fascinating illustrations of God's wisdom and power. Did you know that God has put the wisdom of the gospel into a seed? Think about it. A seed on its own is only a small thing. And a seed buried in the ground has the appearance of nothing. You just bury it under the dirt. And yet, through the seed's death, what comes? Life. Life comes. 
Without the seed being buried, there is no life. But through the burial, through the seed dying, a harvest is brought forth. So every little seed is a small picture of the wisdom of God in the gospel. Paul in Colossians says that in Christ all things hold together. And seeds are a wonderful illustration of that. Every time you see when you drive, we drive down these roads out in the, uh, the backcountry here between Taylorsville and Shelbyville and there'll be all these fields of corn. And every time I see those cornfields getting tall, ready for the harvest, I think the gospel is amazing. God brings life through death. Seeds are tiny pictures of the wisdom and power of God. And that's Jesus' point in verse 24. It's a picture of his own work. Just as a seed must die to bring life, so also Jesus dies to bring life as well. We can even press the image farther. How do you know that a seed contains life within its shell? Only by burying that seed in the ground. So the only way you see the power of life in a seed is by faith. You've got to put it in the ground. The same is true for Jesus. How do we know that he is the resurrection and the life? Only by faith, believing that as they put his body in the tomb, surely that same body would raise up with life three days later. You see the life, it comes through the death. That's the principle that Jesus is trying to draw out here. Spiritual life comes only through spiritual death. Now, at this point, we know Jesus is talking about himself. We know he's talking about himself. Notice the connection from verse 23, Jesus being glorified, to verse 24, life through death. So Jesus is describing his own work. He's describing what, he's, what he has come to do. And we should not rush past this. I had someone tell me one time that I preach the gospel too much. This wasn't here. I had someone say, you're always talking about the death of Jesus. Shouldn't you tell people more practical things? No. We should not rush past this point. The theme of this passage is the kingship of Jesus. And here is clear, unmistakable teaching on how Jesus will be crowned the king. He is crowned through death. His coronation occurs in a silent garden with an empty tomb. As the angels witness. His royal procession will take place in the clouds. As he ascends again to his throne at the right hand of God. So, so, let's pause for just a second. And appreciate that the only reason we live is because the king died for us. And may God spare us from ever growing tired of hearing the good news that Jesus Christ died in my place. At the same time, let's also appreciate where Jesus goes next. By all means, the primary point of Jesus' death is our salvation. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop at verse 24. He goes on in verse 25 to connect this same principle to his disciples. Look again, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Friends, verse 25 is a clear call to embrace the cost of discipleship. 
the principle of spiritual life through spiritual death applies primarily to Jesus, but it also applies to those who follow Jesus. So the cross is our salvation and our example. So verse 25, when Jesus speaks of loving your life, he means having your earthly existence as your supreme and ultimate concern. That's what it means to love your life in verse 25. All you think about is fulfilling your own desires. All that you chase is rejoicing in your own achievement. That's what it means to love your life. And Jesus says those who love their lives in that way will lose their lives. Idolatry always destroys us. And even when that idolatry is our own life, it always ends the same way, death. By contrast, those who hate their lives, verse 25 says the word hate, those who hate their lives are those who understand that salvation cannot be found in this world. Salvation cannot be found in what we do, what we chase, what we achieve, what we pursue. Salvation is found only by dying to life in this ultimate sense and embracing Christ by faith. That's what it means to hate your life, to recognize that this existence is not ultimate. That person who despises his earthly life and turns away from salvation by self, that person finds eternal life in Christ who lived and died for our salvation. So do you see the call in verse 25? Verse 25 is a call to you and it's a call to me. It's the call to discipleship, to follow Jesus. And this call is costly. It's costly. Yes, to follow Jesus means that you will enter glory and dwell forever in his presence. Yes, to follow Jesus means that your sins are forgiven, praise God. But to follow Jesus also means that you take up your cross and follow him every day. Walking the same road that he walked, the, the road of life through death. What does that look like in the real world, we ask? This whole idea of spiritual life through spiritual death, that sounds a bit abstract. So, how do I know if I'm following Jesus like verse 25 says to? How do I know that I am hating my life so that I find eternal life in Jesus? How do, how do I know if I'm doing that? That's a good question. There are a lot of examples that we could give. Let me try to give you a few. A few examples of what it might look like to do verse 25. It looks like the husband who chooses reconciliation by being the first one in the family to own his sin and ask for forgiveness. He dies to his pride in order to live like Jesus. It looks like a mother who joyfully cares for her children who can never pay her back even though she might prefer to use her time in other ways. She dies to what she wants in order that others might live. And in doing that, she lives like Christ. It looks like a church member who chooses to lay aside his preferences and bear with another believer in order for some kind of relational disharmony to be healed. He dies. That member dies to himself in order to live like Jesus. It looks like an employee 
who does not participate in bad-mouthing his boss, even though the boss deserves it, but instead works hard to meet the requirements of the job. That employee dies to herself in order to live like Christ. It's the Christian who endures the rejection and the mockery of his neighbors in order to tell them about the danger of sin and the glory of salvation through faith in Christ. He dies to having a good reputation in people's minds of not being the religious weirdo at the end of the cul-de-sac. He dies to that in order that he might live like Christ. And on and on we could go. In order to follow Jesus, we lose our lives. We lay down the thing that we think will bring us fulfillment. We die in order that we might live in Him, with Him, and like Him. Now, that's not easy, is it? All those examples come from real people's lives. And I wouldn't, in my flesh, I wouldn't want to do any of those things. This is not easy. It is way easier to try to save your life now and worry about the consequences later. I mean, we live in a culture that's mortgaging the future for the now. It's much easier to do that. Discipleship is a much harder road to walk. This this is hard. So notice the encouragement that Jesus gives us. Last verse, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, let's just be clear. There is no discipleship without counting the cost and following Jesus. That's what Jesus means when he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. I want to be very clear. You cannot be a disciple of Christ and avoid the cost of discipleship. You can't do it. At the same time, that cost always comes with a promise. It's the promise of Christ's presence. We will be with him where he is. What's more, we will even receive honor from the Father. One day, one day, the cost of discipleship will end, and those who are in Christ will hear those blessed words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, that's the encouragement that Jesus gives to everyone who would follow him. The king, the king is calling you to take up the cross and follow him. And amazingly, amazingly, that road marked by the cross leads to life. As we get ready to conclude our our time and come to the Lord's table... I want to go back to the, to the first point in the sermon. We've been, we've been meditating on the kingship of, of Christ today. And, and we began by noting how Christ came to Jerusalem in peace. He, he rides in on a donkey, signaling to even his enemies that the time for peace and reconciliation is now. Don't, don't delay. Receive the king today. Receive him now. Later in the Bible, the same author, the Apostle John, describes another royal procession of Christ as king. But this time, the king's entry is different. Revelation 19, Christ the king returns again 
and he returns riding a white horse, a war horse, in fact. And at the second coming, the king does come to conquer and triumph. He does come with a sword at the second coming. It's the sword of his own mouth, which which he strikes down the wicked. One king, two comings, one in peace and one in judgment. Friends, we live in between those two arrivals. We live in between those two arrivals. To say it a different way, we live now in the fear not of verse 15. Now is the time to receive the king. Now is the time for peace. There will come a day though, hear me, there will come a day when the king returns in judgment. And on that day, on that day, there will be no more hosannas. On that day, the king's enemies will beg for the mountains to fall on top of them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And so if you're not a Christian, if you just came to church today with a friend, if you're visiting, if your mom and dad brought you to church, if you're not a Christian, then I am pleading with you, I am pleading with you today to consider the king's terms. Today is the day of peace. Today is the day of fear not. Christ is the king. He has shed his blood to make peace between sinners and God. And through faith in his name, you will be saved. And so turn from your sin this morning. Turn from your sin and confess that you've broken God's commandments. That you have loved your own life. And that you see the foolishness of it. That you don't want to lose it. And then trust in Christ to save you. We live in between those two comings. And so I pray and I plead that you would see the king today coming in peace and I pray that you would respond to him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we pray for no unfruitful hearing of your word. We pray for the Holy 